Yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating yet another wedding. Actually, since the pandemic began, I've officiated six weddings, with a seventh yet to come by the end of this month. People are still getting married. Did you know that? And yeah, isn't that cool? They've all been interesting occasions. All of the pretense, majority of the guest lists have all been stripped away. And that's been giving me the opportunity to really think about what is a wedding ceremony at its core? When you strip everything else away because of the pandemic, what is a wedding ceremony? Really, ultimately, it's the exchange of vows and of rings. The exchange of vows, promises, and of rings, symbols of the covenant. That's really what forms the covenant, the exchange of vows and of rings. Everything else, really, is window dressing. Some of you married people out there, don't you wish your wedding was that simple? You think about all the stress you went through, but really all that needed to happen was the exchange of promises and the exchange of rings. And I've been thinking about that with all these weddings I've been doing, how simple that is, how elegant that is, and yet how life-changing it is for the couples. Think about it. Something so small, something so tiny as a wedding ring has such big implications in people's lives. I'm holding a wedding ring in my hand. Most of you on this lawn can't even see it from where you are. It's that small. Yet, when it's placed on a bride and a groom's finger, it changes everything for them. It changes who they fall asleep next to, who they wake up next to, who they share their banking account with, who they bear children with, who they'll retire with. A tiny little symbol given over spoken promises changes a relationship until death do us part. It's a big deal for such a small little symbol. Why am I talking about this? Because in a very similar way, when Jesus invites us to the Lord's table, he gives us something very small, actually, a little tiny piece of bread dipped in a little bit of juice. And like placing a ring on our fingers, when we take these tiny little symbols into our bodies, it changes everything for us. It enters us into a relationship, into a covenant that lasts even longer than till death do us part. Isn't that amazing? Something so small with such big implications in the biggest relationship in our lives, the one between us and God. Today, we look at this scripture passage. It's very famous. It's well-worn in the Christian church, the one where Jesus invites his disciples to what we call the Last Supper. And today, we're going to be learning about it, what exactly Jesus meant by it, and what it means for us today. So before we study it, before we look at it, and learn what God wants for us, we have to understand a little bit of the setting, a little bit of the context. The context is actually given for us in verse 15 of our scripture today. It says this, Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's the context. That's the setting. Jesus earnestly desires. He can't wait to have what meal with his disciples? The Passover. 
The Passover meal was a commemorative meal where God's people would remember God's faithfulness in delivering them out of the hand of slavery from the Egyptians. When he set them free from that captivity, from that bondage, you might recall that there were 10 plagues. Moses appeared before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He said no. And so God unleashed his wrath from heaven in the form of ten plagues. There were frogs. There were insects. There was darkness. It was a terrible situation. Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. God kept unleashing his wrath from heaven. Moses kept saying, let my people go. And finally, the ultimate terrible plague, the tenth plague, came. Pharaoh was warned that if he didn't let God's people go... uh, angel of death would be sent from heaven and the firstborn son of all the households would die unless a lamb was sacrificed and the blood of the lamb put over the doorpost of the house then that angel of death would pass over that home and you could go free the lamb died so that God's people could go free that's what the people of God celebrated every year at the Passover. They had symbols. They had things like bread that they would lift up and show each other to remind themselves of the bread that they took with them when they were set free from their captivity. And they had four cups that they would share together. Four symbols, remembrances of what God had done for them in setting them free, that he drew them out, that he delivered them, he saved them, that he redeemed them, and that he took them as his own. That fourth cup is really, it's called the cup of betrothal or marriage. That promise that God would would deliver us from our captivity and take us as his own. Like a groom takes a bride to be his own. That's what Jesus was so earnestly desiring to share with his disciples. I love that. In verse 15, Jesus was earnestly desiring to come to that meal with his disciples that meal where they remembered that a lamb died so that they could be set free from captivity. Now, amazingly, look what Jesus says in verse 19. They come to that meal remembering God's faithfulness, remembering God's deliverance. Verse 19, it says, He took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This? This? is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. You see, what Jesus was doing there is he was saying, you remember how God was so faithful to set you free from your captivity, your bondage to slavery? Do you remember how that lamb died so that you could be set free? Remember how God provided just what you needed at that time? Jesus comes back to that same meal, and he says, all of that points to me, actually. And Jesus would prove the very next day when he went to the cross that he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the whole world, that God's wrath 
would be unleashed from heaven once again. But instead of landing on the people who were sinning, it would land on his very own son, on the lamb. And by his blood, we are set free. Why? The same reason he set his people free way back in the days of Egypt, so that he could take us to himself. This is what's communicated at the Last Supper. That Jesus is the lamb, that we have a, an opportunity to be set free from what holds us captive, our, our enslavement to sin. Is there anyone else out there like me where you have a sin pattern in your life and you say, Lord, I don't want to do this again. And then a few days later or a few weeks later or a few months later, you realize you've done it again. That's enslavement to sin. We don't have an actual... Um, Oppressor, the, the nation of Egypt isn't holding us captive, but sin holds us captive. And God says, I've offered you a way out. And it's that I would be that lamb. And my blood on the doorpost of your heart would save you from the wrath of God. That's what's communicated. Why? Because he wants to be with us. He wants to bring us out of our captivity so that he can have us forever like a groom and a bride. That's what's offered at the table. And, and I want us to pause just for a minute and think about what we have done with that information over the last 2,000 years. That's what was presented at the Last Supper, this relationship gesture, this salvation gesture, like almost like a marriage proposal. I want to be with you forever and I'll make the way. What have we done with it over the last 2,000 years? Largely, we've argued about it. <laughs> Entire branches and denominations of Christianity have splintered over Jesus' words at the Last Supper. Isn't that sad? Here's basically how we've splintered over the Last Supper, Jesus said three phrases right in a row. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And those three phrases have really become three whole arms or splinters of the Christian faith. That first one, this is my body, that's pretty much a summation of Roman Catholic theology. This is my body. The Roman Catholic doctrine teaches something called transubstantiation, where we believe that when you hold up the bread and you hold up the wine, it has literally transfigured physically into the very body and blood of Jesus. This is why when you go to a Roman Catholic church, the, the way that the priests treat the elements on the table is with the highest reverence because of transubstantiation. This is my body. They hang their doctrine on that phrase. The Protestant branch of Christianity hangs their doctrine on the next phrase, given for you, given for you. And in some of the later liturgies, they adapted the word to say broken for you. The emphasis of Protestant theology is on the givenness of Christ's body and of his blood on the cross. This is basic Reformed theology, that his body was given for us so that our bodies wouldn't be given up in death. That's Protestant theology 101, given for you. 
And then that third phrase, do this in remembrance of me, that pretty much sums up what I would call progressive theology or liberal theology, where there's not much belief in the, in the presentness of Jesus at the meal, but rather it's a remembrance meal. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a nice way to come to the table and remember who Jesus was how kind he was, how loving he was. Do this in remembrance of me. So those are the three splinters of the Christian faith that have come out of these words at the table. And maybe you're wondering this morning, okay, so those are the three branches of Christian thought around the communion table. Maybe you're wondering, okay, who's right? Who's right? I'll tell you who's right. You guys ready? You can write this down. I'll tell you who's right. Jesus is right. Jesus is right, and what he was really trying to communicate at the table, he was saying, I love you, and I'll do anything to get you. I want to be in covenant relationship with you, and I will become the lamb. It'll be my blood that is spilled so that you can be delivered from your captivity of sin so that I can take you to myself so that we can be together even longer than death do us part. That's what he's trying to convey what a shame that we have splintered over those loving words. Wouldn't it be silly if the couple that I married yesterday, when they went to bed last night, wouldn't it be silly if they started arguing over the color of the rings? I think it should be gold to remember the, the light of God's love. I think we should have diamonds to remember the purity of Christ. And if they got into this argument over the rings instead of consummating their marriage together, that's kind of like what we do when we argue over the table. God is saying, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to be in covenant with you. I want you to myself. And so I will die to get you forever. And we say, well, I don't know if the body's in the bread or not. And we argue about it. How sad. Now, I don't want to end the sermon there because I feel kind of beat up at this point, knowing what we've done to this love gesture. So I want to think about, before we actually go to the table in a moment together, I want to think about the promise, the promise that Jesus leaves us at the table. The promise, he says it in verse 18, it's an interesting phrase. You have to kind of figure out what he means. Verse 18, he says, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. There's actually a promise in that. I mentioned earlier there were four cups at the communion, at the Passover table. And that fourth one is the cup of betrothal, the cup that I will take you to be my self. And we think that Jesus is referring to that fourth cup when he says, I'm not going to drink this one until the kingdom of God comes. I'm not going to take you to be with me like a groom and a bride until we're together in eternity. There's a promise in that. He's pointing us to the eternal promise. As it's described in Revelation 19, it's described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
It's actually a mixed metaphor. Revelation mixes metaphors here. It says, you know that lamb that died in your place? The lamb whose blood was spilled so that you wouldn't receive the wrath of God? That ram in some mystical way in heaven becomes a groom. And we all are the bride. And we will be gathered with our groom, the lamb of God. And we will be presented before the father as a stainless, sinless bride. And we will be consummated in perfect, loving, holy matrimony with our groom Jesus forever. That's what heaven's going to be like as far as we can tell. It's going to be us together with Jesus. You and I will have Jesus in common someday. Even if we never see each other again after today, we'll see each other there where we will have him uniting us around himself. That's the promise. A few years ago, it was a Sunday morning. We were inside the sanctuary, of course. And I knew that my friend Dom was visiting from England. I hadn't seen Dom in a couple of years. And Dom and I had arranged to meet up before worship began. But he got lost in these backcountry roads and he couldn't find it and we didn't get to meet up before the service but I saw him in the sanctuary as the service was going on and after the sermon concluded I was serving communion at one of the stations and I was just serving person after person and out of my peripheral I could see Dom coming up in the line and I could tell as we were getting closer and closer to one another he was getting a little emotional. It had been a while since we saw each other. We were good friends. We were dear friends for years. And I could tell he was, he was beginning to cry a little bit. And I was starting to feel a little emotional as well. I knew I was going to start crying just seeing him. And sure enough, he got right up to the communion station in front of me. And as I served him, we looked each other in the eyes. And we were a couple of full-grown men just bawling at each other. Tears streaming down our face. I served him communion, the body of Jesus, given for you and for me, the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And he moved on in the line. After church, we were having lunch together down at the Coscobber, just laughing and catching up. And I said, Dom, what do you think that was about? Why do you think we were crying when we saw each other at the communion station? And he said, I know exactly what it was. He said, we were crying because that's what it's going to be like someday. When we get to heaven, we won't have seen each other in a while, but Jesus will be in our midst. And his sacrifice will be what got us there. We will be united because of the blood of the Lamb. That's why it was so joyful, Nathan, for you and I to see each other with Christ between us. Because it was a foretaste of heaven. So there we were in the Coscarver crying all over again. But that's the promise. At the table, in spite of everything we've made of the table, all the ways we've splintered and argued and fought about the table. Jesus keeps bringing us back to it over and over saying, 
want you in relationship with me forever. And I'll pay the price to make it possible. I love the line in verse 18. He tells his disciples he earnestly desired to have that meal with them. Do you know that Jesus earnestly desires to meet you this morning? To remind you that he's provided the means necessary for you to be set free from your captivity to sin. He's earnestly desiring you for who you are, just as you are, to come to him, to receive from him an everlasting covenant beyond till death do you part. That's what he desires from us at this table. That's what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit communicates to all of us in the next couple of minutes as we unpack those stinking little plastic cups that we're forced to use right now. I know it's a little ridiculous, but I am trusting that the promise of God is still true in the midst of this circumstance, that he can still communicate with us through this makeshift meal that we're about to do. So before we respond to that invitation of meeting Jesus at this table, it's appropriate for us to be honest with him about our captivity to sin. So I'm going to have a moment of silence here. It's an opportunity for us just to confess silently in our hearts, saying, Lord, here are ways I've been captive to sin. Here are ways I need you to be that lamb for me so that when the wrath of God comes, I would be safe in your righteousness. So let's be silent for just a moment, bringing to mind sin patterns in our lives. And we'll follow that up by reading the prayer of confession together. So let's pray in silence first.